Good afternoon. Welcome to Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. I like that, man. That was a little good morning Vietnam vibe going yeah, on. I'm glad you felt that. Yeah. Well, who are you? Well, I'm Andrew Decker, and you are... I'm Andrew Harris, And we and are I'm Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. And we're just so happy to be uh, joining you guys for another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. Thank you for tuning in. That's not right. Joining us? Tuning in probably works. Tuning in. <laughs> hey, Andrew, uh, did you know that right now we're in the fourth hottest January ever in DFW at this point? I'm feeling it, man. I'm in a t-shirt, and I am feeling the warmth outside. I literally complained to you earlier my shoes were too warm. It's yeah. It's crazy. It is crazy. I, you know, and I really, a lot of people don't like winter, but I really like the winter. It gets so hot during the summers here in Texas that, you know, a, a nice long winter is just what I need. Yeah, me too. And I also like the fact I, there's something about putting on an overcoat and looking kind of gangster. Super classy. Yeah, right, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, you know, so old school. Yeah. Anyway, so welcome to a hot day in January. Yeah. So, and we have a hot topic to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about. We're going to get a hot take. We're going to get some hot takes. I'm sure. I mean, uh, my uh, my opinions. Uh, every episode, every every podcast episode seems like there's always something controversial going on. Um. Today, we're going to talk to you about pre-trial motions. I know, sexy, sexy topic. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, Nerd alert. But, you know, what they, um, what they lack in sex appeal, they definitely make up for in the ability to resolve your case really quickly and seamlessly, you know, just an easy disposition uh, without going to trial. Andrew, what do you think about that? Well, I, I, think, a, I think a good pre-trial motion is can be incredibly effective. We've talked about the fact that both of us have really had some some real success with some pretrial motions. Uh, sometimes we think we need to file more of them. Uh, but also, I don't, as we've talked about previously, I don't just file them to file them. I've got to feel yeah. like this is going to have a better than 75% chance to win for yeah. me to, because I know, I know that, I'm not trying to pick on my judges, but I know most judges are not going to try to throw out a case on yeah on a technicality on, on, or something on, 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 on something that's borderline technicality, right? It's got to be something that's pretty much going to win. Right. So uh, yeah, I mean, I you know I agree. I I'm really mindful of like the frivolous motion. I I just I think if you file too many of those, you're going to get a reputation, and um, and so I I agree with you. I, if right. the facts, um, if the facts support the motion, I'm I'm going to be filing it. And also, like you know, if my client just um, really needs it or wants it or or something, like I, uh, I'll go ahead and file it. Um, you know, if I have, uh, you know, if I have like a difficult client that's been appointed to me, um, I just sometimes I'll do that just to show them like we're we're actually working. We're doing you know we're we're doing what we can right. for them. Um, but I'm, I'm with you on that, man. I, I know, kind of know what my judges are going to grant, what they're not going to grant. Right. Um, but, and a lot of times too, it's nice to get an officer's testimony on what happened on the day in question before going to trial. Yeah. You get a better idea of what they're going to say. Um, uh, we also know what prosecutors are going to, are going to respond to. I mean, thankfully we actually have some good prosecutors we work with. Uh, place to place, 
and occasionally you file a good motion to suppress, and before the even the hearing, you get a hey, I'm going to dismiss this. I'm going to yeah, file this a is not worth tomorrow. it. Right? They yeah. they they realize yeah, I I was in the 75 to maybe 95 percent chance to win, and they realize hey, we're going to give it to you. Yeah. Um, I've had a few that were that were really lucky like that. Uh, didn't even need the hearing and. Uh, you call up a client who's facing a lot of years and literally they start crying on the end of the phone because they're not going to prison. Oh yeah. Uh, That's, and that's a, that's a great feeling. And it it is a great feeling whenever, you know, you have that, uh, that prosecutor who's being a professional and not just out for wins. Right. Right. So um, let's start with just, I guess our, our very basic um, first motion that that you and i both filed. So we're going to start at the beginning we're going to start at right in the middle no we're going to start at the beginning <laughs> first things first let's talk like you know everybody always asks us like well oh, do you file motions for discovery let's talk about that do you file a motion for discovery andrew uh, we're required to we may need to make a timely request uh for discovery under uh, 3914 of the code of criminal procedure uh it's been expanded by michael morton yeah uh, a couple of years ago Oh, actually now four or five years ago. Uh, and yes, you need to file that 3914 timely request. Uh, and of our brothers and sisters out there in the defense world, what I hear the most is, hey, I, you know, this is a case. It's, it's pending, but it hasn't been filed and I haven't gotten discovery. Right. Well, the case law is pretty clear. If it hasn't been filed, if there's not a, if there's not a cause number in the court yet, yeah. it's not a case. Right. The dis- the DA does not have to give you discovery at that point uh, because the court has no jurisdiction to make them give you discovery. Yeah. So when it's time, when the time is proper for you to make your request for discovery, what does that look like for you? I, I do it as soon as I find out that I've been hired. Do you do it in your letter of rep or a separate document? I, I do one to the court, mm-hmm. a letter of rep, and then I do a 3914 to the county or district attorney as, as appropriate. And if it's early and depending on the county... I know often then I'm going to have to file another one when the case is actually filed. Yeah. And for going back to those individuals who say like, what should I do? Case not filed yet. How do I get my stuff? Like one, file your open records request for the probable cause affidavit. That'll answer a lot of questions for you. And two, just call your DA's office. Maybe they'll let you come in and read it. They're not going to give you a copy of it. Maybe they'll let well, you, you know, write some, take some notes down or right. something. So, some, it depends on the DA's office and the type of case. Right. Yes. Uh, sometimes and your relationship with them. Yeah. Right. Sometimes they'll send you, they'll send you basically everything as soon as they have it. And they go, Hey, it's, we're going to take it to the grand jury in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, they're not trying to hide anything, especially if it's something. Well, no, we're, no we're, we're, we're going to say non-sensitive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that's a great way to put that. But I, I would say too, like there have been DAs and offices in the past, maybe even currently, that have tried to maybe engage in a little gamesmanship with this stuff. But but our experience with the prosecutors that we work with, the offices that we work with, it's not really the case. We have uh, some pretty professional, level-headed uh, prosecutors who are who are happy to send us over an offense report. Right, if right. we need it, but, but throughout the state, we hear some some horror stories. And and the, if it's a sensitive case, right. and by sensitive yes. I mean there is a sexual assault or there's a child involved. Um, uh, one of those things that make all of us kind of cringe. Uh, those generally we will get very little until the case is actually filed, until it right. is indicted. Um, and, and there's a reason, and part of it is that it's sensitive, and they're trying to protect the identity of of a of a of a of an injured party. Yeah. 
So, okay, so we get our request for discovery in, and we come to find out that we just don't have every piece of discovery that we're entitled to. So what happens then? We just, like, you know, move on without it? No, no, no. You do not want to move on without it. Um, that was a trick question. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad that I caught it. Uh, <laughs> red herring. Um, if, it, well, depending on, again, on the relationship, uh, sometimes you just go to the DA and ask, hey, I, I think I'm missing some photos, yeah. uh, missing the video, I'm missing something else. Uh, other times, uh, you file a motion to compel. Uh, and... and I, well, if I don't have it in the initial big drop of discovery, I'm probably going to file a motion to compel. Um, I, I've done several of them. And usually once you file it, then suddenly you get everything else you need. Like right. you don't have to have a hearing on it. Uh, I do have a case that's an officer-involved shooting. In, uh, in that one, every time we end up going before the judge, and it's not really a hearing, uh, the prosecutor in that case is very professional, and he literally looks at the judge and says, Judge, uh, we have no objection, and we think that he actually needs it under 3914 and Michael Morton uh, to best prepare his defense and has not objected to any request. We've had one piece of uh, discovery that had to be looked at in camera before it was released, uh, but it wasn't because uh, the DA, it's because... Uh, CPS, uh, Department yes. of Family yep. Services, didn't want to release it. And the judge looked at it and said, here's the Got copy. To. So it was actually provided to us by the judge. And, and a lot of times, too, I think if they're not just going to outright give it to you, but like maybe insist on a motion being filed, they just need that judge's order to kind of CYA a little bit. You sure, know? sure. Again, we're talking about delving into people's stuff that may not necessarily be on point about this alleged crime. Yeah. But it could be very important in terms of a witness, in terms of mitigation, uh, mitigation, yeah. uh, other other pieces. So so that can become important. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's uh, generally just what you know, how we get all of the case information from the prosecutor from the state of Texas. How many times before we move on, how, how many times have you experienced something where like, you know, maybe a police agency just hasn't forwarded all of their information to, you know, to a prosecutor. So I don't know that I have had it where a police agency didn't, but I realized after reading the file that there was more than one agency involved. Yeah. And the second agency had not yet provided that to the prosecutor. Um, uh, and, and once I realized that, and again, I, it, it's the case I was talking about earlier where we got CPS records, uh, I went to the to to the judge, filed a motion saying, hey, I think that I think we have other information with this other agency. I filed it. Uh, we stood before the judge. The prosecutor was there with me, a, a very seasoned and professional prosecutor. And he said, judge, uh, we have no objection because he's uh, to mount a defense if, if there is one. Right. Um, and again, it helps when you deal with somebody who's, who, sometimes the bigger the case, the easier it is to really get that discovery. If it's an officer involved shooting, they don't want this to go bad for them down the road on a technicality because they, they yeah. did not provide everything under Michael Morton. Uh, and so again, the, the, the prosecutor has been very professional and, and, this this is going to likely go to trial sometime later this year, right? Um, so th that's that's how we get our 
our discovery. That's how we get our information that we use to mount a defense. Um, you know, we it's important that defense attorneys really digest every piece of information they get from the state because you may have a situation where you know your your prosecutor's telling you one story, your client's telling you one story, and then the police officer really like memorializes what happened uh, on the day in question. Up was good. I, I don't know if the search was good. Something along those lines. So Andrew, um, you know, for for our audience, if something like that, if you're reading in the offense report, just something doesn't feel right. What's your next step? So my next step is probably going to be to file a motion to suppress. Okay. Uh, so that is basically. What does that mean? Right. right I'm getting there. I was, I was there. I was ahead of you on that. Um, the motion to suppress is to say, uh, Judge, I think that somewhere uh, the law enforcement, the state procured evidence in a way that was unlawful. Um, so, for example, uh, going back several years to a case, I had a man who pulled up to a, a minor accident on a two-lane road. He stopped while other traffic, the accident was kind of off to the side. There was an officer sitting there with with the car that was was hurt. Okay. Um, and then there was traffic coming. He stopped completely, and another officer came up behind him and flashed his lights. The traffic cleared. He went around, and they stopped him for for stopping in the road. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, well that's not a, that that's not a crime. Yeah. And so and so. <laughs> Uh, and especially when, when you looked at the video, you realized this guy was just basically waiting for traffic to clear because it's a small, windy two-lane road. Yeah. Um, and and he, was, he didn't want to hit the cop that was standing exactly. there. Uh, but unfortunately, this, this 74-year-old man had been at dinner and had a few glasses of wine and was over the legal limit. Oh, he literally man. was in his own apartment complex when the officer actually stopped him. Uh and thankfully, the, uh, a uh, motion to suppress got that that thrown out because he had not committed any traffic violation. So, so I'm going to ask you some questions about this, and I and I just want you to know, like I know the answer. Wink, wink. I just need uh, we need to go over it and make sure our Do audience. Do you really know the I'm answer? I'm just saying, you know, if for you the know the audi- answer, okay, for the audience's benefit, when we say suppress, like why is it called a motion to suppress? Why isn't it just called a motion? to kick the darn evidence. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know why. I know what a motion to suppress is. You are literally suppressing the there evidence that uh, was supposed to come in following like that stop that I said on that little windy road. And you are suppressing it. It cannot come before the court, before the jury, before the finder of fact in a trial later down the road. Yeah, so we're holding that, that evidence back or down. Uh, the state's not going to be able to use that. Uh, particular uh, particular evidence or you know anything fruit. that comes right anything that comes after that illegal act or or that warrantless search or stop or seizure it becomes as you were about to say go ahead fruit of the poisonous tree right so so the rest of that stop was fruit of the poisonous tree he hadn't committed a traffic violation so you can't stop him you can't you can't and if I can't pull this guy over for for no traffic violation then how do I know that he might have been drinking how to know know that he might have been intoxicated. So so that doesn't automatically mean that the case goes away, right? No, but often it does, especially on a relatively minor uh, case. Like, And again, not we're not advocating DWIs. We yeah. talk about them all the time. But 
uh, on a DWI, if you if you suppress the stop, there's nothing else there. Right. There's nothing else. And the, and the state could, I, I don't know, I guess could still present some information that's not subject to the suppression to a jury and probably come back with a not guilty pretty quickly. But um, typically what you see is if a motion to suppress is granted by the judge, the very next thing that's filed by the DA is is a dismissal. Correct. So correct. It, or at least a lesser included. Let, yeah, some um, some kind of working it out. Like maybe, you know, um, I don't know, a, a brake light out ticket or so, I don't know, who knows. Um, the possibilities are endless. But but really the suppression doesn't by itself dispose of the case. It just means the state is going to be restricted in some way as to what evidence they can produce in court. Right, to some or all of the evidence. And, and, and I think that, that that very closely ties to, if we're talking about things that can't be talked about in court, the motion in limine. Yeah. Right? Um, so, so what's a motion in limine? Well, a motion in limine then is, hey, I'm not saying that one side or the other can't use this information, but what the judge is saying is, before we get into it, let's just approach and make sure that it's being used in a lawful way. Um, so motion in limine, you know, any kind of like evidence coming from an expert or from a witness, um, you you often will try to use a motion in limine to tailor what those individuals are going to be saying. Um, a motion in limine as to like referring to certain witnesses or maybe the complainant as a victim because you want you don't want like victim is very is a, is a very um i don't know what kind of word is it what's inflammatory what I, yeah it's like an inflammatory word like you you're just automatically if somebody is a victim they've already been adjudicated to be it, the crime has already been adjudicated essentially so it's just something like you know nomenclature that we just really kind of want to control um but right, there's but, mm-hmm. but on that motion in limine, one of the things that we have to remember uh, in for a defense or a prosecutor is that even if the judge grants a motion in limine, that you can't talk about the sunglasses. I'm just using that just kind of as a random little thing. Uh, you can't talk about sunglasses, and somebody asks a question about sunglasses, and you ha- does that motion in limine prevent that question from being answered? Uh, no. No, no you've got to object. Someone right. has to stand up and say yes. objection. Yes. That has been uh, and asked to approach and so forth. And most most time what the motion in limine really is, if it's granted, is just a warning sign that, hey, before we talk about sunglasses, approach. Why are we going to talk about sunglasses? But if a question's asked about sunglasses and, and the other side, the opposing side, whether it's state or, or defense, does not object, that motion in limine provides no no barrier, no relief later right. on down the road. So, so right. So the difference between a suppression and a limine, and that's L-I-M-I-N-E, is that a suppression means this is off the table. You cannot talk about this. Bring it up. You cannot use this evidence. A limine says, yeah, you can you can leave it. You can use this evidence. You may be able to get into it, but the court's going to be the gatekeeper. Okay. Remember. If you do not object, you have waived it. So even if you have a granted motion from a court saying, "Yeah, let's let's um, you know let's talk about this before we get into it," you must still object as as your client's advocate um, to really give this motion its full full power. All right. Well, um, Andrew, there's there's a lot of cases, or there's a lot of I should say law statutes that 
we have to we have to deal with we that are that are new you know every legislative session and some of those laws actually go before a court of appeals and are found unconstitutional we've talked about some of those on on right. this right uh, back when we podcast. talked with uh, Tobias Lopez yeah and what is you know what what's the mechanism for having a court determine if maybe we're dealing with one of these unconstitutional laws. Okay, so assuming that we are pre-trial yeah, and someone is being detained here, I'm going to actually read it. Uh, sometimes, again, I love, I, love, I love the code. The Code of Criminal Procedure. Uh, if a person is confined after indictment on a charge of a felony, and okay, so you would automatically would think that he must be in, in jail. Right, right. That's the way it sounds. Confined. Yeah. But the case law is defined confined has defined confined. There we go. There we go. Uh, as any limitation on their freedom. So if they're on bond, uh-huh. and they can't leave the county or the state, or they have to report to a court on a regular basis, they have to report to community supervision. They're being confined. So some limit on their liberty. Some limit okay. on their liberty. Uh, if they're confined following indictment of a felony, that person, it says he, but that person may apply to the judge of the court in which he is indicted, or if there be no judge within the district, then the judge of any district whose residence is nearest to the courthouse or of the county in which the applicant is held in custody. So in other words, even if there's not a district judge available, you can find any judge uh, of a district court anywhere. Where, Where can people find this? In the code? This would be Article 1107. We're now talking about writs of habeas. Yeah. Um, and again, so if if you have a client who's being held, who's being confined in any form or fashion, and you are after indictment but pre-trial, and you think that the statute may be unconstitutional, either it's been found unconstitutional at some point, or... Uh, you there there's some unconstitutional issues. You just kind of have that. Hey, I think the Constitution is being infringed. Um, then what you file is an eleven oh seven, preferably to the district court in which, uh, which has the confinement, uh, in which the case has been been uh, indicted. So, for example, uh, yeah. Oh, I called it an 1107, didn't I? There you go. Andrew, Andrew's, I'm literally looking at it, and it says 1108. This is Article 1108. 1107s are post-conviction writs, yeah. um, uh, which I'm much more familiar with. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, which those are a thing as well. But, those are a thing but, as well. Um, but yeah, these are 1108s, right? Sorry, sorry, Andrew. Um, but, for example, I have a client uh, who's been charged with something where part of the statute has already been found to be unconstitutional under the freedom of speech, sec, uh, uh, under the, the U.S. Constitution. Yeah. Um, well, the second part has never been found unconstitutional. It's online solicitation of a minor, and there's not actually a minor involved. He's right. not actually talking to a minor online. Um, and people have tried to fight it under first of, under the First Amendment freedom of speech. But I looked at it, and I'm watching the video, and I'm reading the reports, and I'm like, but he has a right to go wherever he wants to. Why? Because we have freedoms of association, freedom of commerce, freedom of travel. travel All yeah. of those are protected under the Constitution. It's how uh, we got rid of uh, segregation in the South. 
because yeah. they said inter, interstate commerce was affected by someone traveling and needing to, to be able to eat at a restaurant, use a gas station, stay in a hotel. Well, I have a freedom of travel. I have a freedom of commerce. I have a freedom of association. And, and it's something to think about. Would that make the rest of the statute, especially if there's not actually a child involved? Right. Yeah. You, know, you know, there was never a child at risk or involved in this. Doesn't this guy have some freedoms yeah. to, 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 to travel in the middle of the day? Right. And, and then, I, you know, we, we, I think I feel like a disclaimer coming on. Like anybody who's traveling to do something illegal with a child needs to be prosecuted. That's not what we're saying. However, right. that's not one of these situations, but it's, it's, a, it's a hypothetical that, you know, in reading that offense board or reading that, that charging instrument, something just doesn't sit right. I mean, if we extrapolate this out to like the greater population, you know, it could literally, uh, these small one-time cases could affect everybody's life in some way. And so that's really what we're saying. It's really what we're doing is, hey, wait a second. This can't be constitutional because if you think logically about it, um, then it's going to affect everybody's right or, or, you know, many, many people are going to be um, guilty of this, you know. Right. So it's not like we're, you know, I feel like last episode and this episode, you know, we're talking about maybe some some children type crimes right again there is no in this case there is no person under 17 involved yeah there is a picture of a person who's now over 18 right from when they were under 17 but remember it's a little icon on your phone would you really be able to tell from that like somebody's age or somebody's age and do we trust the our profile pictures to be enough to determine who it is I'm chatting with uh, again I'm thinking about a friend of mine who's an attorney who has a white dog with black sunglasses I know him he's not a white dog with black sunglasses uh, it, it's basketball season and hockey season and, and I have a few friends that have stars logos uh, for the Dallas Stars as their profile picture. They are not the Dallas Stars. Yeah. Um uh you know Right. So it, we we're we're assuming I, I think in this in this situation like there's a lot of assumptions being made like like I am interpreting what you are adding or what picture you have up as that actually being you when you know in this day and age you, you just don't really trust anything that's on the internet, right? right? Certainly like somebody who's, who's saying they are, you know, this type of person or whatever, like, you know, that's just not, that can't be true. It can't be an, you know, honest because we've all heard like too many horror stories about it. Right. Well, you know, it's called catfishing for a reason. Yeah. Um, there you y- go. There's y- a term for it. There's a term for it. I put something out there to get someone else interested and then you find out it's not true. Um, uh, so the 1108 habeas is a way to fight the constitutionality of a of a statute prior to trial, um, and I, I'm filing my first. One, I'm working on my first one, and, uh, and yeah. we've talked about it. And I truly am like, uh, th- this is not one where I think I've got a 75 percent chance to win. I think it's something where I think the court's probably not going to grant it, but I feel like I have to do this. Yeah. Um, for several reasons: one, to protect my client; two, to protect people who are who are online who've who are being catfished in one form or another; and then three, 
also th- there's a sense that that this this is my duty yeah to to put forth the best effort I can to defend my client and in this case I think the 1108 habeas uh, is that absolutely uh, at this at this point? And so. good on you, Andrew. You know, um, what about can you file this just to like you know if your client's entitled to a PR bond if they've been in held in custody longer than ninety days without a but even on a PR bond even uh, so like can you use this same code section to well it, it says you know, after it's very clear if the person is confined after indictment on the charge of a felony. Uh, yeah. So it would have to be after, um, and then the 1109 is for the misdemeanor if the person is confined on the charge of a misdemeanor. Uh, so for it to be a charge of a misdemeanor, a charge has to have been, uh, a complaint has to have been filed. Well, I know there's a there's a mechanism because I've I've filed one recently to get you know to to if your client's um, in custody after a 90 day mark on a felony, uh, and the case has not been filed yet. Um, we'll, we'll save that for another, for another episode. We'll have to right. find that. that that PR bond. Uh, you know, it's like one of those things like, you know, when you, when you have so many clients and, uh, and you're dealing with, you know, filing motions on multiple cases at the same time, you know, sometimes the, uh, the actual article numbers, um, get a little jumbled in your head. Right. Even when I'm looking at it, I can't come up with 1108. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, all right. So after it's indicted, after, uh, you know, maybe you're already in court and you just, what happens when you just have an issue with the actual indictment itself? Okay, so let's say we have an, an issue with the actual words on the indictment. Um, uh, if you've been listening to us for a while, you remember the chicken killing uh, with Allison Bedore, okay. right? Um, and, and in that case, and then in a case recently, I filed what's called a motion to quash, a motion yeah. to quash the indictment, basically to to make the indictment invalid, to, to unindict a case. Um in that one, we filed the motion because there was no evidence of one of the two counts, and so we filed a motion to quash uh, once once we actually got some more records and we realized that there had maybe been uh, some issues with the interpretation of the law yeah. um, that it wasn't real wasn't real clean. Um, in a more recent motion to quash, and, and we won that motion. Uh, that case got dismissed outright. Yeah. Um, uh, in a more recent motion, uh, it's a uh, theft of services case, and in that, uh, there's there's three forms uh, to to talk about. It's a theft of services case, and in the indictment, they said that this person did intentionally or knowingly, by deception, threat, or false token, secure performance of a service. Well. They don't put a to wit. Right. Right? And, and not in most of the time, the case law says that as long as you follow the, the, the wording of the statute, that the indictment is good. But there's also case law that says that if there's more, one, more than one way to commit the crime, or if it's unclear as to how the crime was committed, that they have to clarify in the indictment. Okay. Well, there's no to wit in this indictment. What do you mean by to wit? Well, it's 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 fancy words that say this is how they did it. Yeah, so, so literally adding the words to wit, meaning hey, we we've copied the code section in the indictment, but more specifically, or to wit colon, this is the specific right. acts in which they did that. Right. So I often, often like the deadly weapon finding, it'll be to wit a motor vehicle, to wit a gun, 
a firearm, a knife, a baseball bat. Specifically defining or identifying something in the indictment, they use a what we call two wit. Right. Sorry. Gotcha. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm just just talking without thinking. No, and that was for our audience, not for me. Okay. Just all right. to be clear. Just to be clear. <laughs> uh, but here we have we have three different options. Yeah. And and they are not the same, and they're not the same legally. So deception requires some action by the uh, by the defendant, my client, prior to the actual services being rendered that that caused the the service er to to come and do the work. Right. Yeah. It's a, it, so it's a trick ahead of time. I've deceived you to come do the work. Okay? Right. Yeah. The second is by threat. Basically, I've said, "Hey." I know you've, you know, I I know something about you or your family, and if you don't do this work, right, come I'm, do it or else, or else, yeah. right? Blackmail. That's blackmail. False token is then a I give you something that you think is a value and it's not, right? Yeah, right. Um, uh, so you know, let's say I don't give you a check because that's usually theft by check, but but I give you, well, I give you uh, a municipal bond that I'm holding. And then you find out there is no uh, city of Andrew and Andrew in the state of Texas. Well, there should be. There should be. Well, there's I an understand. Andrews, Texas. So that would be like both of us together. You know, but we're going to go there. Andrew and Andrew. We're going to go there and record one day. <laughs> All right. <laughs> those those so, poor people. So, so basically, I filed a motion to suppress on this. Or sorry, a motion to quash because I said they didn't define. And because these three actions are so different, I could defend against one and be wrong on two. Right. I could defend two, defend two, and and not really see the third one, and have my person convicted because I didn't get a a clear definition of the charge. It's supposed to be in clear, clear and readable language. Right. The charge to which you have been uh, given. Right. Well, this or in this sentence leaves three options, and it is not clear. No. Yeah. Okay. So. Has that have you had that heard that motion yet? Uh, we've heard it, and it's still sitting on a judge's desk. I okay, hope. so yeah, uh, we, take we, it under consideration we, we're, right we're now. Taking it under consideration. And what was the state's contention here? They said we follow the language of the statute. They said yeah. that's all we have to do. Mm, okay, <laughs> Mr. Harris, not convinced. Um, uh, no, I mean, yeah, right. And they and you know, I, I think they have when when adding in deception, threat, or false token because that's included in the statute, and so they're trying to be as all encompassing as possible. But I mean, you know, come on, guys, like you add two wits on some indictments. Why not just? I, I just don't get it. Just and, I, and I literally said, all you need to do is tell me which one you're going with. Which one yeah. is it? Well, and it's not hard in a lot of these counties to just change the indictment, motion to change the indictment, represent it to a grand jury or something. Okay, so. Let's that the, you've you've um, you filed the motion. You've had a hearing in front of a judge. Judge taken it under consideration. If she grants your motion, what happens to this? Well, that motion gets gets quashed. It basically, the indictment gets quashed. The indictment, right. right? The indictment gets quashed. So it no longer is an indictment. Okay. Now there is a chance that they could reindict the case. Right, because that right? there's nothing that says, "Hey, this is a final death knell for this no. case." But it would then, if they reindicted it correctly, yeah, then we know what we're fighting against. Right. Right. And and there's there's always, you know, in the larger counties, like some of these prosecutors just say, whatever, just let it go. Right. Even you in know? smaller counties. Sometimes they, <laughs> oh, they, they look at it and they go, you know, this is this is now a two or three year old case. I'm I'm not picking it up again. Right. Right. Yeah. 
So, so the motion to quash, again, I filed a few of them. Um, but you have to really feel like there's something in the indictment or in the way the indictment was procured that you're willing to go and say they did it wrong at the district attorney level. Um, and, and that's, you know, that, that's kind of a big, a big push. Yeah. You know, did you, did you speak with the prosecutor before filing the motion to quash? On both of them. Yeah. On both of them, I, I, on one of them, I tried and, and got a, got shut down. Right. And the other one, I actually talked to him and they said, no, we've, we followed the statute. We know what it says. So, um, you know, this is one of those, those things that, um, you know, the court, I think requires, maybe not officially according to the code, but like kind of like a conference, you know, in, in the civil realm, they have to include a certificate of conference before, you know, a motion to compel is filed or, or uh, along with a motion to compel. Um, just to say, hey, we've, we've gotten together, we've talked about this motion um, before it has been sent over to the court. And so, you know, that's something I like to do before filing a motion a lot of times is try to get some resolution um, quickly, easily, amicably with the prosecution. But, I mean, I, you know, you've experienced it. I've experienced it a number of times. That's not going to work on every single case. Right, and some of it is that the prosecutor is busy enough. They 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 aren't really thinking about your case, right? Right. Give them give them some some room to be human. Um, and other times they're looking at it going, no, I don't think the judge is going to care. Yeah. Right. They they know they're judges just like we do, and and other times, well, they're just they're just being pains in the butt. Right. They're right? being prosecutors. So. Right. Um, <laughs> and we're pains in the butt too. I'm I'm not trying I'm oh, not yeah. trying to knock our prosecutors. No. Um, no. Yeah. Generally. Generally speaking, uh, so for the most part, I think that we all are trying to do uh, our best work in our own way. Yeah. How about, how about that? I, I think that's fair. Yeah. Well, well done, Mr. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, and, and and people say we're not fair on this podcast. Come on. How much more people say you? that? I don't know. Pe- don't they? Mm. I mean, we have one review that's like pretty positive for us but i i just know like you know we we are we are talking about one specific side of the criminal justice system but i want right, you all are, to we, know we, we yeah it, it is titled on on texas criminal yeah, defense right? but but i you know i recognize like um there are more than one side to a story there's more and, and that's really what we deal with we deal with stories and uh, and I know, you know, in dealing with most of the prosecutors, um, they genuinely want to get it right. Um, and it, it really is just a, a, you know, a handful of times in my career where that's not really the case. Maybe they're just a bit vindictive or they, you know, hold personal grudges uh, with cases. I don't know. Right. Let's but, move but, on. But again, I don't <laughs> think that's the case on, on, on this indictment that we've just been talking about. Yeah. It truly is. I think that they that they needed to put a two wit, make it clear, and we'd probably be headed to trial. Right. Uh, yeah. But without that in there, I can't risk. Well, two things. One, if I don't ask the judge to rule on it, I've waived it and accepted the indictment as is. Yeah. Okay. So if I go to trial thinking it's on a uh, threat, yeah, I'm just using that one as an example. Uh, if I if I say it's on threat and I'm wrong, and I prep a defense for threat, and they go with false token, 
and my client goes to prison, well, and I've waived it because I didn't didn't file a motion to quash. There's no recourse down the road. Yeah, I mean, so I file the motion to quash. Partly, it's partly to cover to cover my client. It yeah. does two things. One, I want to know what the charge really is, what the indictment really is, and two, if I waive that, if I don't object, if I don't file the motion to quash, then later down the road they can't say, "Hey, we didn't know and it wasn't clear." They'll be like, "You waived that." Right. And and I and I think like, you know, a lot of people are probably thinking like, "Well, that that may be ineffective." Yeah, maybe, but but probably not. That, probably. That's a high bar. Uh, with a court of appeals to get overturned for for right. an IAC claim. In fact, I would say that it's probably never going to be ineffective on on something like that because, well, one, we've all read an indictment and didn't see that it had a prong in there that we didn't catch. Yeah, yeah. I just don't. You know, I, I get it. Um, you know, this is this is one of those things like it's necessary and and probably you know for you to um, effectively represent your client for sure, but 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 doesn't rise to the level of an ineffective assistance of counsel. Right, claim. because, well, and if they did, I'd be like, well, there's trial strategy. Yeah. Right? Anyway, that, we're, we're not going to yeah. go there right now. All right. Uh, we'll, do, we'll do an episode on how to get around an, an, an effective assistance of counsel claim. Uh, we'll bring in somebody that's, that's had that problem. That's had that, yeah. Right. Yeah. Not us, not thankfully. Us. <laughs> not, not yet. Um, all right. So those are just some pretrial motions that we talk about a lot. Uh, wanted to give some more details to you. You know, this is what we mean when we and, say... And I love a good pretrial motion. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, that's a great way, kind of what I said at the beginning. It's a great way to dispose of a case very quickly and very cleanly. Um, and if not, if it doesn't go your way, you know, you've got the officer's testimony uh, in a record. So if he changes that later at trial, you can you can keep him honest. Um, it puts your prosecutors on notice that, hey, you're not just, you know, you're not just pleading cases out left and right. You're actually, you know, doing your job. It keeps them honest. I mean, it really... It may preserve your right to appeal, depending on which yeah. one of these motions uh, you took, you, you, you had heard, right. and whether it was granted or not granted. I mean, this is just, it's really powerful stuff. If you are not filing motions, uh, pretrial motions, um, you know, watch out. Your, your, your bar card is likely in jeopardy. Um, <laughs> I know harsh, right? <laughs> that was um, harsh. I would say if you're not if you're not looking at it seriously and asking, is there a pretrial motion that needs to be filed? You're at least being lazy, right? Yeah, and and your clients deserve better, and they're going to come hire Andrew or Andrew. So yeah, they are. Boom. Um, all right, y'all. Well, we've taken up 42 minutes of your time up to now, so let's wrap it up. Um, you know, look forward to more, uh, intriguing episodes later in the year. Uh, you know, we, we published these on the first and the 15th of the month and already it is February. I mean, that is, uh, just crazy to me. One month of 2020 down and we are just moving full steam ahead. Um, if you have any suggestions for topics, please, please, reach out to us. Our website is uh, www.texascrimdefense.com. You can find contact information for both Andrew and myself. If you're listening to this podcast on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts, go ahead and leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Um, it, it helps other people find this content. Go ahead and share it with your friends if you think you got something out of it. And Andrew, why don't you take us out, man? 
All right. Well, thanks for being here today. Thanks for listening to us. Thanks for playing along at home. Uh, for Andrew Harris, I'm Andrew Decker. Thank you and good night. Good night, y'all.